Hello, and welcome back to Nate on the show. Thank you. It is good to be back. Chris, Andrew, how are y'all? Good. Seems like, what, fourth time's a charm this time to record? This yeah. is recording number four. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm uh, doing good as far. well. Good, good. Uh, last time we talked last week, Rails Comp CFP was still open. Um, we were all eager to submit proposals. Three people were more eager than me. Um, but if y'all would like to share, I'd be curious to hear what you submitted to RailsConf. Yeah, I can go first. Uh, I did a submission on action text and um, just kind of like the advanced usage of action text because a lot of people think it's just a rich text thing like Markdown. Um, and it is, but it also allows you to like, you know, dynamically link HTML to um, any, you know, active record model in your database or even like not um, uh, other things like uh, O-embed stuff. So if you wanted to embed a YouTube video, you could do the same thing. And it's it's all signed with global ID um, to look up those records and stuff. So I was um, proposing basically a talk on how to do that stuff where you can do at mentions in there, extending tricks to uh, to allow you to you know type an at symbol and then start typing a user's name and then selecting the user and then uh, actually embedding that. And then the even more kind of complicated setup of like, Okay, embedding a YouTube video. How do we do that? And um, if you if if anyone's not familiar, uh, there's a kind of protocol thing called OEmbed that you can like you can run like YouTube runs a OEmbed endpoint, and you can hit that endpoint and give it a URL for a YouTube link, and it will give you the iframe content and a thumbnail and whatever other information you might want, like the the title and JSON. And uh, so you can basically hit that from all these different services like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and whatever, and get your kind of metadata around how you would embed that content. Um, And so you can actually extend, you know, tricks and then retrieve that content and uh, then you cache it in your database because you don't want to make the API call every single time um, that you render your your text, but, uh, that's a, you know, kind of a much more advanced way. And I've seen a bunch of questions of how to do that in the, um, the GitHub issues. So I figured that would probably be a good talk to give and it'll probably be a screencast I'll have on go rails pretty soon. So that was my, my proposal. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask if you had a screencast yet for that, because I'm, I'm really familiar with tricks, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what action text adds to it. Yeah. And, and it's really that, um, that whole piece of, uh, you know, tricks will just generate HTML, which is good. But, um, if you're on GitHub, for example, and you're writing in a pull request comment, you want to mention a user, you want to mention another issue or something, and you can type, you know, these other characters and, and type it out. You'll notice that on GitHub, because they use Markdown, um, if a user changes their username, it just like doesn't link to that user anymore. Um, and this is uh, a way to do it where it's actually like the HTML records uh, a global ID, which uh, says it's user and their database ID internally. So then when it gets rendered out, it will render the like default user partial um, so you can have that with like their avatar and their name or whatever you want. And, and a great example is if you want to go see how this looks, uh, just use Basecamp and mention another user in one of their um, comment boxes. And that's like an example of what you can do. And then, uh, yeah, in, internally it will like minify all that HTML um, when it saves and just stores like an attachment HTML um, tag with the global ID on it. And then when it renders it out, it finds and replaces those uh, with the partials for the related record. So then you can have different views. For example, 
in rich text editors, it's not super fun to have an iframe for like YouTube embedded in there. So you might want to just display a image thumbnail of the YouTube video when you're editing the text because it's more manageable. Um, so you can have two different partials, one for like rendering the final content and one for editing the, the tricks version of it. And so there's basically that's what action text is a way to connect that with um, any model in your database or, or in your application um, so that you can have like these permanent changes. So like, you know, Basecamp has an avatar rendered when you mention a user and their name, if the user changes their avatar or their name, then it will be updated automatically because next time it renders, it will have that user's new uh, uh, avatar. So um, it really goes like the extra distance to make that uh, much more rich than just a WYSIWYG, which is really cool. Um, but the, that's like not mentioned in the guide and uh, the rails guide for action text. And like, no one really talked about it. And, uh, I, I really am like, I want to talk more about it because it seems like such a cool feature that a lot of applications want. Um, but if we don't really talk about it, no one's going to use it. So it seems like something that needed to be uh, promoted a bit more. Yeah. It sounds like uh, GitHub could really use it. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any knowledge as to whether or not GitHub contributed to some of the features of action text or if they're doing something completely different. I mean, did this come completely from Basecamp or were I there? I think a- it was. Uh, and I think it was completely from Basecamp because GitHub uses, um, and they made that HTML pipeline uh, library, which is like, kind of a bunch of middlewares that you can run uh, your text through that a user submits. So you can extract the, or you can re-render as markdown, but extract at mentions and uh, you know, the hash symbol to reference an issue or a pull request and all that. So I think they are doing it a bit more naively and it probably is not easy for them to go upgrade all of that old markdown uh, and those comments to a new, you know, because tricks is all HTML based. So a little bit harder to edit, um, you know, and you at least don't need to know Markdown and Basecamp's not like a developer tool. So it is a bit of trade-offs here and there because with Markdown, it's like really easy to write, but um, it's also like not quite as flexible. Um so there's pros and cons to both, but I don't think GitHub um, uses that. And they've used, I know they've used Markdown and, and the HTML pipeline library uh, for quite a long time because that's what they use to like extract emojis and whatever. Yeah, that pipeline, like the chain of middleware sounds like a kind of a smart way to do it as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool because you can just drop in like, a, for example, like, you may want links to be uh, rewritten. So or you can detect a link in the text pretty easily, but you may want to, rather than just rendering them out as a regular link, you might want to link them uh, as target blank and no follow, no refer, and all that sort of stuff so that people aren't abusing your, your comments for SEO or whatever. Um, so you can go and add a little middleware thing to, you know, pre-process your text a little bit to do that. You can do your images, you can do, um, all kinds of other stuff. And I believe they even do that for one of my favorite features on GitHub is the, uh, um, it's like a list of checkboxes. Um, they're, you know, somehow generating like an ID or something for those checkboxes to keep track of which ones are checked or persisted. And actually, maybe they're not. Maybe they're actually just editing the content there itself and putting an X in. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably the simpler option anyways. But those little checkbox things like make perfect sense too to generate a checkbox. Then when you click it, it updates the text server side to include the the X inside of the square brackets that it uses in Markdown. So... You know, all that said, like, it seems like, you know, anytime you're doing comment systems these days, people expect to be able to mention other users. Um, 
Action text comes by default with image uploads because of active storage, which is nice. But, you know, it's like a nice to have feature, but you don't always want that. You almost always do want user mentions and other things or or uh, YouTube embeds, for example. So um, it is a really, really cool feature of Rails that I don't think gets near enough um, attention. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. So what was your... Uh, uh, conference pitch. Well, it's a little bit uh, self-promotional, but it's uh, uh, introducing the world to stimulus reflex and building reactive applications with the Rails tools that you're already using today for, to build server-side rendered apps, HTML over the wire, all that kind of stuff. How can you how can you build something that feels like React but lets you just do it all with standard Rails tooling? I like it. Um, what so are you going to walk through like an example of how to use it or, um, you know, what's, what's the, yeah, I haven't covered. Yeah. I just did my proposal, so I don't have the presentation ready, but my, my thought was, uh, just cursory introduction to what web sockets are, how they work with, uh, action cable. And then moving from there into another gym that I've created that stimulus reflex sits on top of called cable ready talking about doing, you know, out of band, uh, Dom updates from things like background jobs. Uh, walk through some of that. Help help everyone understand that, and then and then take it from there into what Stimulus Reflex itself is and how to build a reactive app using Stimulus Reflex. And I may contrast it with you know one of the one of the front end frameworks and just say you know here's how we would do it over here, and if you did it with Stimulus Reflex, this is what it might look like. But I'm still kind of debating what the format of the presentation would be. I like that. I, I think that it's, uh, you know, most people's defaults, if they want to do anything complicated, just to go into, we'll use React or Vue or whatever. Um, and that might be a really good way to, to show like, look, you know, you can use some pretty standard Rails, uh, you know, workflow if you use uh, Stimulus Reflex to accomplish basically the same things. So that might be pretty cool. Yeah, especially if you've got, and here's the thing, I haven't made Stimulus Reflex work with older versions of Rails yet. It, it will go back to Rails 5.2, but I think anything predating that version, um, it's it's not really, you'd have to jump through a few hoops to kind of contort it to make it work. But if you did have a Rails 5.2 app or even a Rails 6 app that was just all server rendered and you wanted to kind of spruce it up and make it a bit more reactive, you could introduce Stimulus Reflex in a very kind of unobtrusive, non-committal way and just make certain parts of your site a little bit more reactive. Yeah, that that seems really nice. I I know I went on Hatchbox and have like um, action cable, like updating states for apps and servers and, and just keeping track of their pending or active or uh, provisioning or whatever. And you know, having done that from scratch and like as one of my first attempts at like, here's how I use uh, WebSockets to keep this in in check on the, the client side. Um, very quickly, I realized, you know, uh, if I change the state too fast in my background job, TurboLinks won't have finished re-rendering the thing on the client. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, my my client side is out of sync already. And I, you know, was not expecting it to be as tricky as it was to get that right. And I feel like stimulus reflex would have saved me a whole lot of time just to use that instead of trying to reinvent the wheel a bit. Yeah, that would be a fun experiment to, and and I'd be more than happy to pair with you on it. If you wanted to start introducing some stimulus reflex to your hatchbox application speech. Speaking of which, I've got the Stimulus Reflex Expo site, which is just a set of demos. And currently it's hosted on Heroku. And I've been meaning to set aside enough time to to move it over to DigitalOcean using Hatchbox. Yeah, we should uh, we should chat and uh, I'll help you get that moved over if you like. That'd be yeah, fun. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, what was your conference proposal? Mine was about mentorship essentially and you know from like a junior perspective of like you know what are some things that you can do as a mentor to really you know 
promote learning and creativity in your junior developers. I so, like it. it that yeah. one fit in uh, one of the tracks too, right? Okay, yeah, it, it did. But because I'm an idiot, I didn't realize that it there was actually a mentor track until after <laughs> after I submitted it because the talk kind of kind of morphed as I was writing it and in the beginning it didn't really fit into that track um for mentorship but then at the end it did but I never actually changed the track to mentorship so <laughs> that's funny. I think they'll probably be able to you know put it in the right bucket as necessary though yeah I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Um, but it was, it was fun to work on. So. Yeah. Was this your first, uh, conference proposal? No, I submitted a proposal for RailsConf last year as well. That was rejected. Mm. Yeah. I forget what they got up to. Uh, I don't think I saw the final count, but it was getting real close to, uh, 450 or 500 last time I saw. So there's quite a lot of, proposals it looks like yeah i think it was almost a thousand i was trying to pull it up in time but i'm pretty sure the last day they got like 400 at least wow that is that's amazing that's crazy i'm i'm curious jason if you had submitted one what would your talk proposal have been uh let me pull it up for you i have i wrote out nine different topics um they mostly fit into the track so i had the one i like spent the most time on that i didn't submit was for the Rails sans active record track and it was about when to just write raw sql in your application versus not um let's see here's some of these other ones uh there's a memorable, memorable post-mortem one and the like almost two years ago now I had a pretty bad experience with sending out like 800,000 push notifications uh, to people's phones that were unnecessary. Um, and then, yeah, the other one was that like is worth talking about was about trying to say more with less. And that was going to fit in like the creative communications one. But yeah, I was laying on the, I laid down on the couch last Friday night after it was been a pretty rough couple of months and things have been better. And I laid down, and I was like, Oh no, this ends tonight. And I just sat there in quiet and was like, it's okay. And I just let it go. So here we are. Well, I, yeah, I would have loved to hear some of those, especially your, your, your push notifications when the, <laughs> and the lessons learned and the takeaways there. Yeah. It, uh, it, it was a thing that was never like very publicly talked about. So like, I still haven't really like gone into exactly what happened and where and all that, but essentially it was a really bad, and we kind of talked about this before the show. It was a really bad data migration that happened, um, which like just, <laughs> yeah, wreaked havoc among my life and the lives of many others. So Yeah. Uh, those all sound like really good talks and, uh, I will be at RailsConf, and I hope to hear all three of them. So I'm a little worried about mine because I didn't, mine didn't actually fit in a track, at least not an obvious one to me because of the way the tracks were outlined this year. So I just left it as general. So I'm, I'm kind of got my fingers crossed that they'll put it in the right place when they look at it and, and maybe, maybe they'll find a home for it. Yeah, my, the mine was first the same. Time, the first time I gave a talk at RailsConf was through a general talk. So it uh, it was outside of a track, but it got accepted. It got waitlisted and it got accepted. And it was actually probably one of my better conference talks. So uh, there's hope. Nice. Uh, Nate, Andrew was talking last week about some major... Uh, work y'all had going on do y'all want to maybe catch us up on that over at code fund yeah we had a uh, a big pull request that's been going on for a month with over 100 commits on it between both andrew and i 
I think Eric may even had may have had a commit on it as well. But uh, yeah, it's one of these big features that's a, a pretty pretty large shift uh, in how some of the underlying stuff operates or works. And so just vetting it out, building it, iterating on it, and uh, kind of pulling it along for over a month. It's like you don't typically want a pull request sitting around that long. We finally merged it and got it shipped, and we are thrilled about that. Of course, now we're now we're in the phase of iterating on it and sanding the rough edges off, but it's in production, and we could not be happier. That's great. Yeah, the feature itself is essentially a way for us to sell inventory in a predictable way. So we've got some pretty sophisticated forms, some very complex data that comes up underneath um, and helps our salespeople, helps our advertisers understand what inventory we have available in terms of where the inventory exists, uh, you know, across the world. Uh, and that, the, what I'm calling inventory is essentially just uh, uh, a website visit on one of our publishers' websites. And um, so we can easily show what traffic we've got, where it's coming from, and what audience it's for. And that's something that advertisers are very keen to be aware of because they want to know that their their advertising dollars are being spent wisely, hitting the right uh, places and the right uh, the right type of audience. And that that proves that you know, for them that it will be effective, that spend will be made wisely, and they'll see some return on investment. And then we can then turn around and share that that revenue with the developers and the open source projects that are all publishing with our platform. That's great. Uh, how was, I know you said you're relieved it's over. How was the process of getting it out? <laughs> it, it was a little bumpy getting it out. We, because it had dragged on so long, we had a few, uh, we've had a few hiccups along the way as we released. And, and I may, uh, I may pause here and let Andrew kind of take that and, and walk us through what happened. Yeah, so when we deployed, there were two kind of issues that sort of arose. One was the fact that I removed um, Axis Paranoid because we weren't using it really, and we decided to change kind of our, basically the way we were deleting records, and instead of deleting them, we were just going to change them to an archive status for the... Uh, particularly for the types of records that we had put Axis Paranoid on. So we removed Axis Paranoid and the migration to remove it was pretty destructive. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but we we should have done a phased rollout where we removed the gem and then removed the column from the database, uh, the deleted at column. So basically what happened when we deployed is that as Heroku was... Um, like spinning up the new dinos and moving traffic over to them. And they, it's kind of like a, a phased rollout maybe is a good way to say it, but they basically claim that you won't have any downtime. So as soon as the new dinos are spun up and they moved all the traffic over to them, then they shut off the old dinos. But in that time that they were moving all of the traffic over, uh, every time someone tried to hit that, hit the uh, object that we had removed that column from it failed and we overwhelmed our roll bar within a minute, I think because every ad render was going to hit that object. So that was a problem. So we basically had like 20 minutes of downtime during that. And the other problem was we couldn't really test on staging because, well, I mean, we had prior to this, but we were going to test the morning of and, we tried to do a, a production data dump to our staging environment. And Heroku had upgraded all of our tools from like PG, uh, PG Restore and things like that from uh, 11 to 12 to Postgres 12. So even though our database was using Postgres 11, all of our tools are now on Postgres 12 and we couldn't use any of them. So... Yeah, that effectively rendered it impossible to test with any kind of production data on stage morning of the rollout. So we just yellowed, yellowed and promoted. <laughs> oh man, that's that's rough. Um, 
I was going to mention you, you. This reminded me of. Have you guys heard of the strong migrations gem? I have yeah. heard of it. I actually wrote something similar way back in the day. Uh, this was before, uh, like DDL stuff was transactional, and I don't even know if it is on on my my sequel anymore, mm-hmm. or if it is still. Like if they've added that feature. But I've I've since moved to Postgres, and since these things run in. Uh, um, you know, a transaction. If the if the uh, migration doesn't work, then then it doesn't commit. The DDL doesn't change. Doesn't happen. I don't yeah. know. If long migrations is actually doing something like that. But I had a gym that that actually did tried to protect and guard against that, so you couldn't get stuck. Because in the old days, you could actually run the migration, and it would like succeed with about you know half of the steps, and then all of a sudden, one of the one of the DDL changes you're trying to make failed but it wasn't wrapped in a transaction. And so you're stuck now like in this hybrid mode of half of that, half of that migration actually succeeded and the other half didn't. And then rolling back and getting out of that state, even in your development environment could be really difficult. Oh no. Yeah. That sounds really bad. Um, I haven't had to deal with that where something like generally I've always had the migrations do a pretty good job of rolling back all the changes. If something failed, um, the strong migrations is a little different in that it actually intercepts your calls and your migrations and will tell you if you're doing something uh, potentially dangerous. So for example, if you were to generate a migration that has a remove column in it, it will tell you in an error when you try and run the migration that you need to do this in a phased rollout. And then it says all the instructions on it. So it's like, Hey, uh, go and add this column to the ignored columns um, list in Active Record. Deploy your code. Then uh, you can write a migration that um, they, they give you a method called safety assured. Um, and you call that and put a, it in a block around your uh, remove column. So then uh, you know then at that point that this migration is safe to run. Um, and it won't throw the exception then. So it just kind of intercepts those things for you that are typical, you know, gotchas like that one, I guess that if you're in this, probably the thing is you don't remove columns very often. So the one time you do and you're like, oh crap, you know, uh, that caused a big problem. Um, he has, I don't know, like 10 or 15 different, uh, situations like that, that the, gem will catch for you when you write a migration that does one of those things. So that that's been something I thought was like really nifty and almost feels like something that should be in active record itself or whatever, just cause it's like pretty crucial to uh, reminding me those little situations that I'll probably forget. Cause if I run them in development, I don't really have to worry about it too much or whatever. So it's such a rare thing that I found that gem to be pretty uh, handy in those cases. Yeah, we definitely could have used it. Um, we'll, we'll probably be adding that, honestly. Yeah, I, yeah, I've used it in the past as well. Um, at my last company, one, it it is probably worth noting that you can wrap your migration in that safety assured block, but you need to remove the safety assured stuff before you like pr- push that to master production because typically you put your strong migration gem in just your development environment. So I had an instance one time where we promoted to production and it was running the migrations and that method didn't exist because the gem was only in the development environment and everything hit the fan. Uh, but that I don't, what I don't think I've, I think I've always kept it in all environments because I think yeah, I don't see that in the, the readme, so maybe you guys had it in development, but or maybe, maybe this has changed too. Like it may be an older version or something that that recommended it being in development. Because I always thought it was for I mean, most of these cases are gonna come up specifically for production. Uh so I I'd always seen it used in production, but that's interesting. Yeah, that's probably what we should have done. But <laughs> at that company, we were just so like cowboy, cowboy coding with the database that uh, we added that gem, and every time it gave us a warning, like we just disabled it. 
So there's really no reason to have it except for like, oh, that's good to know. I'm going to do it anyway, but that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, uh, yeah, that's definitely some cowboy co- coding there. <laughs> um, Nate, I was going to ask you to uh, to chat a bit about the stimulus reflex uh, form stuff that you guys have been doing, because um, this is certainly a problem I've dealt with uh, recently on, on Hatchbox and stuff that uh, sounds like stimulus reflex would make a whole lot easier. Yeah. It, I mean, forms are especially complicated forms are, are very challenging. In fact, I mean, I, I believe that was one of the drivers uh, for Facebook to create um, react in the first place was dealing with, uh, very complicated state changes and things like that. I know it started with their their messaging, uh, like their chat app, and just kind of keeping all the conversations in sync. But I think part of their justification to continue with development on that project and uh, was their essentially their 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 ad purchasing form, which is a very sophisticated form if you've ever gone through that. But at Code Fund, we've had a, a similar need with a very sophisticated um, ad purchasing. Uh, form. So we have to, depending on what criteria the user is filling out, we need to surface information up to the person filling the form um, in terms of what, you know, if they've selected a particular series of regions and it could be any permuted set of those regions, then they drill in, add a campaign that they want to run, and then they start selecting the audiences that they want to target. We actually have to surface a lot of information to them to say, okay, well, these these are all the campaigns that are currently running that are in competition with it. Here's how much inventory we've sold. Here's what's available still that you can purchase through these date this date range that you've selected. And essentially, it's a bunch of helper information to kind of um, encourage or help the user fill out the form in the correct way, put the right values in each form element. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the interesting challenges with stimulus reflex is it's so powerful and so flexible that the, the temptation may be, well, I'm I'm already kind of persisting state between this whole wizardy type flow. How do I submit? Because I could just persist it essentially as as you make minor edits um, with real time updates. But that's that's kind of not really the best practice with uh, stimulus reflex because it doesn't it doesn't purport to replace Rails and the Rails functionality that exists. It's there to enhance it. And so, as far as forms are concerned, we used stimulus reflex to provide support. Whether that's real time validations happening, you know, via the WebSocket, but still using all of your active record model based validations or surfacing the information necessary to help these users fill out the form correctly. We do all those things through stimulus reflex, but when it comes time to actually submit and commit all the data, we send it back through uh, standard Rails mechanics. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems like your, your default and what I did was uh, I had a similarly complex form for, for Hatchbox. And I mean, I reached for using Vue and then creating a bunch of, uh, you know, other little endpoints to surface, you know, some data from an API so that I could have that in the front end. But then like the frustrating part was I lost all of those uh, features of the Rails helpers and all of that. And I had to like replicate any of those things and validations all on the client side, which is pretty frustrating because then I lost all of that. And the like the form submission was annoying too, because now um, I, I have to like rewrite some of the uh, JSON or the JavaScript object. I have to convert that to JSON, but then if I'm, and I'm doing the same thing with nested uh, models, then I've got to like rename the key for that nested one to be, you know, the model name underscore attributes and put those under there. And I got to make sure that I, if there's like an ID um, that that's included in there. Um, otherwise, I know it's a new record, and all those things just started to like add up. Where I ended up reinventing an enormous amount of the Rails forms uh, just to build that form, and so that that's why I was like really curious because it seems to me that you know my ideal would be to let uh, Rails render the form, and then 
yeah, if you change something like a, a dropdown selection needed to trigger a, another select box that's dependent on that one to pop up with a certain group of selections, you would be able to do that using all your regular Rails helpers as if you were just editing a record like normal. And that would already be kind of done for you rather than having to rewrite all of this stuff in, in JavaScript, which was not my favorite thing to do. And it just ended up being quite a nightmare. Yeah, I, I'd posit that you could have probably cut that effort down by a minimum of 50%. Yeah, and man, I, it, the same thing happens. Like my edit uh, form is mostly the same thing, but some things you're not allowed to edit anymore. And so now all that JavaScript kind of got duplicated with a bunch of conditionals here and there where it's like, if it's a new record, we want to have these things. If it's a an edit, we want to do those. But like Rails is really good at saying, you know, we'll just populate all of these fields with uh, the values automatically for you and and so on. And I could just use ERB for that. And that probably would have been a whole lot better. It seems like something I'm going to definitely need to um, check out. Uh, so do you have like, are you calling something whenever, like if, he, if a user was to change, say like for your example, um, their demographic of like, you know, 18 to 35 year olds. Um, is that something that you write some JavaScript for to go trigger the re-rendering or is that kind of automatic through this? Um, well, you could do it. You could do it with some custom JavaScript if you needed it, but it's not a requirement. So essentially what, what Reflex does is it has you write a Ruby method on the back end and it's just a, a standard Ruby method. You can think of the Reflex as being kind of like a Rails controller, but it's not really because it doesn't concern itself itself with doing any of the rendering. It's just there for you to change some state. So if you had uh, like an age range dropdown, and when that selection occurred, you needed to, you know, update some other dependent parts of your form to to limit or change the selections or options that were available. The you would just wire up a data attribute on the select for when when that value changes. And when that value changes, essentially, you would just modify the state, whether that's in the database or if you're holding something in session or something like that, that your your view itself, your form view rendered in ERB knows, well, when when this instance variable is present or it has this value, then then change, you know, what what options are available on the subsequent portion of the form. And then all, it would just render. As long as your Rails stuff knows how to render the ERB templates correctly, given you know the current state that you fed it up through the instance variables, then it would all just work. And yeah, you don't have to write any custom JavaScript to make that happen. Uh, that's really neat. Um, yeah, because you're almost just, rather than like a regular stimul- stimulus controller that... Uh, triggers a function in your JavaScript controller. Uh, you just call a, you trigger a function server side, which is pretty sweet. So yeah. yeah and, that, and, it's, and it's quite fast as well. So when the, when the Dom updates, it happens through a Dom diff. Uh, we use morphedom to make that happen. And so you don't get any like screen jankiness or anything like that. It's just the, the elements that need to change though, or the, uh, that have changes are the only ones that update. That's neat. Um, so is, so is there like a uh like an instance variable for the form um like the model object that you are uh submitting to, like when it handles one of those events server side is that like just persisted over the websocket connection um or is that getting reparsed uh and then instantiated each time it really kind of depends on on the like on your specific needs. So it's pretty flexible. Inside of a reflex, you can set up an instance variable. And what happens after a reflex method call invokes, it it's aware of what page uh, the reflex was triggered from, and so it just delegates back down to um, the action view controller and and tells it to re-render the one that it knows it's already rendered. And then any instance variables you set up in your reflex are then also made available to the controller. So for example, if you were dealing with a user form and on the reflex, you said, well, they, they, 
selected their age to be this. And that that change or that value for their age may show or hide other aspects of the form. Well, you could go ahead and on the reflex instantiate the user object and set the value. And then in your controller, you could or equals the assignment to at user. And then it would just bind the form to the user that the reflex instantiated, knowing its value. And then the, the Rails ERB piece would know what, what to render you know, based on the state of the user itself. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, it's one of those where I'll have to actually like see the code and try it out to probably like fully wrap my head around it. But at a high level, I think that does make make sense. Um, have you guys like? Are you using WebSockets a ton um, for a lot of connections, or is this still a a relatively low number of connections? Because I know that the, the like people's concern, of course, was like. Uh, RAM usage and, and other requirements, just having these WebSocket connections open and then any cable came out as a alternative you can use that's a little bit more efficient. Um, but I was curious if you guys, and I know Jason, you're doing chat at Podia. Uh, I was curious how performance has gone for uh, WebSocket stuff. Yeah, on the CodeFund side, we don't we don't have a ton of concurrent active users. We show a ton of ads, but in, per, in terms of people that are logged into the app and actively using it all concurrently, we don't have a ton of users that are all doing that. And so our socket connection load is is certainly manageable. I would imagine Jason may have some more insight in terms of scalability, but I would point out that just recently the any cable team has made it so that they, they've now surfaced uh, sessions up, which means it works with uh, Stimulus Reflex now. Uh, that's cool. We looked at any cable. Um, if for us, it may be a thing we eventually have to use, but like starting out, we realized we didn't. We went, we have Action Cable basically anytime you touch a Podius storefront. Uh, action cable connects because now visitors can chat with uh, creators. And so, yeah, we've, we've actually been okay as far as scalability right now. We did up our dynos though. Like we're running performance L or whatever. So like we have massive amounts of room um, and we've been pretty steady. We haven't like even gotten to the top of that. But I think our next step after that is going to be something like any cable. But yeah, action cable has been been fine for us. Do you do you have any idea of how many uh, concurrent users you're supporting on on a WebSocket? I don't. Um, it's not a number I've actually delved into. Um, it's got to be quite a bit though, because um, we have. We have lots of creators uh, and people buying stuff from them. I'd have to look at that and get back to you. Yeah, that that would be really interesting to to see what that number is. Yeah, I'd be really curious too. And it's one of those where like, you know, I assume Basecamp can pretty easily throw money at that problem. Um, But if you're like trying to be cost conscious about it, I've been curious like how effectively just regular old action cable scales up. So I'd love to, to hear that. Um. Yeah, interestingly enough, it's not really a, a problem. Like, I don't think it's a limitation of Ruby itself. It's uh, It may be more on the internals of the existing implementation, possibly, of Action Cable. Um, I haven't actually cracked it open and looked too deeply into the internals of, of Action Cable, but I've, I have been following uh, Samuel Williams, who's the guy that has created uh, Falcon Web Server. And he's got a few tweets where he's connected a uh, hundred thousand concurrent WebSocket connections to a small, like a relatively small uh, virtual machine. And it handles the load just fine. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I think the only thing I really saw was like the benchmarks or whatever that any cable had, had posted. Um, what, I don't think I know too much about Falcon. Um, what is that? It's uh, it's a web server, essentially, uh, kind of in the same family as Unicorn or Puma, one of those thin, um, one of those types of web servers. But it's very focused on uh, high concurrency. So 
the 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 general idea is that you're going to get a lot more throughput because your IO wait time now is no longer a factor in latency on your requests. As far as how they block each other, right? There's going to be it's going to be a non-blocking type of a scenario. So you'll get the same type of performance out of other non-blocking technologies, whether that be you know Node on the back end or something like Elixir. Oh, that's cool. Um, that may have been why uh, originally I think Action Cable was implemented by DHH or whoever, but with the Event Machine as the thing that was powering it. And I remember like there was just a bunch of um, conversation about it and like Mike Perham chimed in and, and things got kind of rewritten uh, underneath. And I, I don't remember the details of it. And I don't think I ever really looked into the source code on, on how it works either, but they, they also had the change too, where it's like, you know, it, you used to kind of need to set up uh, your own uh, cable process that would would process things and now it's like you just run it right through puma and don't have to worry about it which is nice so yeah that's that's something i definitely need to learn some more on and uh i think didn't uh, uh yeah nate nate Berkepec tweeted about uh it looks like gitlab switched over to to using puma and save like good 30 30 or something of memory usage switching from unicorn so that's pretty uh Pretty good improvement. And you, didn't you also say he uh, tweeted about the uh, lazy loading uh, association thing in Rails 6.1? Yeah, there's there's some new feature coming out uh, for Active Record where you can essentially set a flag on a on a has many relationship that will prevent lazy loading. It'll actually raise an error, so you can track down your n plus ones and squash those if they're causing you causing you problems. The one interesting thing about N plus ones, I don't know where it is, but I, I saw a podcast once with, uh, or a screencast with DHH where he was talking about how N plus ones are actually a feature uh, if you think of them in the context of Russian doll caching. And so it was kind of a, 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 a fun counterpoint to this idea of like never, never use N plus ones. But I mean, if you architect for them, they can actually be a feature. Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember where uh, that conversation was, but I remember very clearly being like, oh, yeah, I guess that is true. Because it's kind of, uh, you know, just a blanket statement every time that people are like, N plus ones are always bad. And it's nice to see that. That's like, yeah, guess what? Even those things that you think uh, you can just have a flat, like, approach on not necessarily you know because otherwise if you're doing russian doll caching you're loading all of those records and you may only need to actually re-render one of them so that's a lot of extra you know work to do just to re-render one entry and that's why n plus ones wouldn't be uh, a bad thing in that case they're probably a bad thing when you're warming the cache up for the first time but um yeah, that would be an interesting solution. Would be to avoid the n plus ones on the the initial cache warming, but then and then use them after. Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess maybe you could do that if you knew the parent uh, if it was cached or not. Then you could um, you could have it do the eager loading. Otherwise, you could skip it and just do your n plus one. That would probably work. I wonder you you I guess would maybe need to do your own helper for that or something to wrap um, the rendering and, and do that check. But you would be able to check for the cache key pretty easily. Um, and then, yeah, I, it doesn't seem like it would be too hard to do that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. So I'll, I'll await your, uh, your next gym. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I had the time, somebody filed a, a uh, issue on a gem that I wrote in like one evening from 2014. They like filed an issue last night about it, that it's like uh, it's loading action controller base, I think, and, and causing a deprecation warning, which I wasn't able to like uh, recreate, but it was like, boy, like I guess I created this gem a long time ago and just never, I didn't never use it. So it never got updated, but 
yeah, I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to, uh, fix it, but hopefully if I do look into it now, I know I should know a lot more than I did before and, uh, be able to fix it quicker. But boy, that was, uh, that was a funny thing to, to have surfaced from so many years ago. One uh, thing that uh, I was going to say, one thing that I started doing, Chris, for my open source projects is creating a, I, have you ever used uh, GitHub templates? Uh, yeah. Like the issue templates. No, like you can create a repository as a template basically. Oh yeah, that's right. I have, uh, or, or I used it once to see how it worked and that was it. <laughs> so I've started creating like, for instance, I do this with my RuboCop action. I created a repo as a template and was basically like, Hey, I set it all up with pretty much everything I thought you would need. And I was like, Hey, if you have an issue, use this, use this template, um, reproduce your issue and then attach it to the issue comment. I was like, mm-hmm. that will dramatically increase whether or not like I can help you or my time to help you. At least if I can just you know, quickly see, like if you add me as a contributor and then I can quickly get in there and see exactly what's going on, I can move so much faster. So yeah, that's might be food for thought. Yeah. That's, I like that smart move. I'll have to do that. Uh, cause something like, uh, jumpstarts open source version or whatever tends to break when a dependency changes or something. So that would probably be a good example of that where it's like, uh, you know, go replicate it, you know, send me a link. Otherwise I don't probably don't have time to, you know, look in too deep on your issue. Um, yeah. I was going to mention too, your, uh, I really like your idea of your repo, just keeping track of your conference proposals and whether or not they got accepted. I'm going to have to start doing that too. Yeah. I, I did that mainly to quickly share with some people. Um, cause I basically created the talk as a pull request and then invited a few people to review it. So yeah, that was, a. Uh, that was it was pretty pretty convenient for that purpose, but then I was like, you know, I I like being able to work in the open. That is one of the great things about working for CodeFund is that everything I do is in the open and it's all open source. And I have started to carry that over to some other stuff I do as well. So yeah, that was just one more thing. I was like, hey, I might as well make this available um, as a convenience factor for me, but also just like, hey, if you want to see some of the stuff or some of my conference proposals, they're all right here. Yeah. I love it. It's one of those things that like, that's really the whole reason go rails got started. Cause I, I had kept uh, notes on how to, you know, install rails and deploy rails just for myself. And I was like, it probably doesn't hurt for me to throw them up on a website. So other people can reference these too. And then maybe, you know, people submit um, changes or fixes or improvements or whatever. And, you know, that turned into uh, my whole job. So that was uh, definitely a philosophy I support and it's it's awesome. So I, I, those little things of like, oh yeah, I guess I could, you know, publish my conference proposals publicly. It, I don't care, um, you know, and I, I just need to go and apply it to more stuff. Like I usually think about code first, but it definitely applies to, anything else. And and that reminds me too of, uh, someone pointed out there's, I think Andrew Kane maybe is the one that organizes this as well. Um, he has open source, um, or at least freely available, like privacy policy templates from, or official privacy policies, terms of service and stuff like that from companies like Basecamp that don't mind if you copy their uh, legal docs like that, which is really awesome too. So that's another, you know, whole avenue of things you can share. That's not, doesn't have to be code all the time, which I think is awesome. Yeah. I'll second the Basecamp company documents. I mean, everything from their employee handbook to, to legal documents and all sorts of things they share. It's, it's really valuable. Well, um, anything else you guys want to chat about before we end this episode? 
I'll give a little teaser that uh, I've started at least an experimental project. We'll see how far I take it. Um, I think Andrew's going to pair on it with me a little bit. Uh, but we're exploring this idea of building stimulus components, generic stimulus components that aren't opinionated about what uh, what CSS framework you may be using to style them up, but adding behavior, uh, common behaviors for your app uh, through a suite of standard stimulus components. And you know, where appropriate, they'll we'll probably add some stimulus reflex stuff too. Ooh, I really like this idea. Um, I wrote a set of stimulus components that uh, were mostly just for uh, Tailwind to add modals and uh, tabs and and your common things uh, that Bootstrap has. Um, but as I was building them, there was absolutely no reason that it's anything specific to Tailwind. Um, I just happened to nail, name it with Tailwind of the name because that's all I was thinking about at the time. But as I went through it, I realized like they, they would apply to anything. So yeah, I may have to chat with you guys about that because I think that's certainly something that uh, would be like super practical. The other thing I was going to mention is Alpine JS may be something to look into too. It's kind of like uh, stimulus, but you don't even have to write any JavaScript classes, which is kind of it's it's kind of neat because it's so lightweight, but it's also maybe a little less manageable for situations like this. Um, but it's definitely something to look into too. Yeah, I, I have not heard of that. I'll I'll go take a look. It's kind of uh, if you've used a view template where you can have your v show and v if stuff in your HTML. It's kind of like that, but it's all set up with mutation observers like stimulus. So you can have your all of your JavaScript kind of like built into your HTML um, and it will just automatically work. You know, any anytime the DOM changes, it will continue to work. Um, that almost so, sounds kind of like Knockout from back in the day. Oh yeah, I don't think I ever really got into Knockout. I pretty much just uh, used jQuery throughout all that time, but uh, one of my friends did and that might be very, very similar. Yeah. I kind of do like the uh, the organization of these stimulus components, though. I think that will make the, the stuff a little bit more um, clear, maybe more maintainable. But yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny on CodeFund. Like I was just kind of scanning through a lot of our stimulus controllers and there's not a there's not a reason for a lot of those to be custom to our code base. Like a lot of that functionality could be made even more generic and then just shared across everything. We don't have to rewrite that stuff for every app. Yeah, that's a it's such a good idea. I like it, and it's kind of like your like your cable ready library. It's just one that can be generic and used for can be used to build a stimulus reflex, but it could be used to build something else too. So seems like a really good idea. I like it. Yeah, would love the help. So yeah, let's collaborate. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Jason, anything else uh, you want to talk about? Uh, no, maybe just actually shout out uh, Nate and Andrew's uh, other podcasts they're on if they want to give a brief uh, summary of that. Go for it, Andrew. Uh, I was waiting for you to say it. Um, we have started a podcast network called the code fund podcast network over at code fund. Hence the name. And one of them is called the Ruby blend and it's Nate, myself and Ron Coke cook. Nate, help me. Yeah. Yeah. You got it right. Okay. And we basically just chat about Ruby stuff, almost similar to what we're kind of doing here. Um, and it's we're starting to publish them. I think you need three of them to get on iTunes and stuff. So I think we've actually recorded four or five at this point. And I was supposed to publish the other, the second one yesterday, but I forgot. So I'm going to do that today and hopefully we can soon get it on iTunes and overcast and your other podcast players. And we are going to be looking for guests soon. So if you want to come chat with us, you're going to say you're both invited. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like fun. 
Uh, so it'll be mostly topics about Ruby stuff. Yes, in theory, but the majority of our uh, conversations up to date have been pretty polyglot. But the last one that we recorded, Ron, it was just Ron and I because Nate was a little busy that day, and it was purely Ruby based. So I would say it's it's Ruby based, but we definitely talk about a wide variety of things that are related to uh, web application development and things like react and even some DevOps stuff. So Ron is super smart and Nate is also super smart and I am also along for the ride. So it's uh we get some great conversations over there. So it's been fun to have um, Ron definitely brings a very different perspective to it based on all of his experience. So that's, it's been fun. It does sound like fun. I'm excited to, to give those episodes a listen when you eventually get those published. Huh? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, great. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us today and I will hopefully talk to you all next week. All right. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. See ya.